uh, Sherwood Baptist Church of Albany, Georgia, put together a movie called Fireproof. Um, I'm sure that many of you have seen it. How many of you have seen Fireproof? Okay, most all of you. Uh, so you hardly need me to tell you what it's about. But it centers around a fireman named Caleb Holt. And uh, his marriage was deteriorating. And at work, he trained his fellow firemen, never leave your partner in a fire. And yet at home, there was a fire. His wife and he and his wife were, were fighting and arguing and constant conflict. And Caleb was leaving his partner. He was leaving her behind, seeking his own pleasure, doing his, his own thing. And it's, it's true in any deteriorating message. There's always, always this back and forth. He's got his reasons and she's got her excuses. And he said that she was unthankful for all the things that he did for her. And she said that he's selfish and all he wants to do with his time is spend, spend himself, spend on himself and money. He wants to buy this boat just for himself. And there's back and forth. It, it, it went on. And uh, they were on the brink of divorce, and then Caleb's father comes. And he says, I just really encourage you, wait for 40 days. And during those 40 days, he gave him a, a challenge. He challenged him to try, remember what it's called? How do you remember? What's it called? The Love Dare. Then eventually, right, they made this book and made lots of money, and right, investing it in other movies, which are they're good movies. I, I love those movies, but it's the... It's the love there, and it kind of came out as a result of that. Basically what it is, 40 days, 40 challenges for someone to demonstrate love in a demonstrable way to, to their spouse. Um, and you just, you just wait to see after 40 days where the marriage is. And mostly it's to say, you know what, I need to love this person more. How can I do that? And just start. It starts easy. Day one, love is patient. The book reads... Right? Resolve to demonstrate patience and to say nothing negative to your spouse at all. For some, that's hard. But some that could be easy. Okay, just nothing. I mean, that's, this is a deteriorated marriage. Day two, right? Love is kind. In addition to saying nothing negative to your spouse today, do at least one expected gesture of an act of kindness. So just do one thing. Day three, love is not selfish. Along with restraining from negative comments, buy your spouse something that says, I was thinking of you today. So on and on it goes. Just day four, day five, eventually day 40, love is a covenant. Write out a renewal of your vows and place them in your home. And if God is merciful and changes your heart, changes the heart of your spouse through this troubling marriage, or you know what, guys, you can do this, right, whether your marriage is troubled or not. I didn't do this in preparation for this marriage, okay? But, but you could do that. Just kind of pick it up. It's online. You, know, you don't just need to catch the, the gist of each one. If you want to do that, that'd be a, a good thing to do. But you do that. If a, a marriage is on the rocks, there's no guarantee, but perchance God might be merciful and you can have a, a restored marriage where things are, are better. Um, and there's no guarantee. There are enough stories, though. I just went online and saw enough stories of people who did this and really found, found help in their marriage in these ways. Because as you force yourself to exhibit um, acts of love, it will help. And spoiler alert, that's what happened in the movie. Right? Caleb and Catherine got together again and we can assume lived happily ever after. Now we don't know, I mean sure, like every marriage in life, it's rocky grounds of up and downs, but 
But things went well because of this love dear. Now I tell you that story, not because we're talking about marriage today, but because we're talking about love. We're talking about love today. And the love dare does a good job at illustrating what love is. Working through 1 Corinthians 13, working through other passages of Scripture that just, just says that love is doing and giving and pouring out, particularly here in the, the, the love dare. It's even to someone maybe who's non-responsive. That's what love is. It's patient, kind, doesn't seek its own. It seeks the good of others, giving out what you can and what you will because you love. In fact, this book has been so successful that they have even made another book called The Love Dare for Parents. Written for parents who have struggled with their children and just to try to try to win them back or try to win their own hearts of love towards their children who have hurt them badly, perhaps. And I don't know if they ever considered writing a love dare for the church. Sometimes that might be appropriate when church conflicts arise. Because anytime you live closely together as a, a church family, as a church body, conflicts will arise. And, and that would be a good book. And uh, I'll expect the royalties to come in from the Sherwood Baptist Church. Um, but that would be good to help what it means to love a fellow believer. Especially maybe when there's, there's not love there. Especially maybe when there's, there's doubt. Especially when there's a heart on, on your behalf, my behalf, on my, my behalf, to restore, to restore a relationship. That might be a good book to write. might be a good book to, to follow through. And well, we're, we're going to see love, love towards the brethren. 1 John chapter 3. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet there, I encourage you to. We've been working through 1 John. And we've come this morning to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. But before we read the text, we really got to go back to verse 10 because verse 10 sets up verse 11 and following. Last week we were in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, which I called the righteousness test. It's examination of your life. Do you practice righteousness or do you practice sin? Because the, the pattern of your life indicates whether indeed you are a child of God or a child of the devil. It's verse 10 states as clear as can be. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And it's stated negatively. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There it is. If you do not practice righteousness, you are not a child of God. Plain and simple. If you're pursuing your sins, your own passions, there's no change in your life, you're not a child of God. You are a child of the devil. God is black and white on that. You're not like kind of halfway in between. No, if you're not practicing righteousness, you're not of God. If you are practicing righteousness, you can have the assurance that you are of God. And verses 4 through 9 really flush it out what it looks like. And last, last time we were in 1 John, two weeks ago, we just flushed that out. What does it mean to walk in righteousness? Or what does it mean to practice righteousness? If you need help with that, you can go on the website, you can pick up a CD, whatever. Today, though, we're, we're going on to love, like verse 10 again. By this is evident, who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness, not of God, that was the righteousness text, verses 4 through 10. And now we get the love test, verses 4 through really the end of the chapter. We won't quite make it through all the way today, I don't think. But nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here it is, the love test. In other words, if you love your brother... You're a child of God. If you do not love your brother, 
you are not a child of God. Now, when it talks here about brother, I do believe this talks about fellow Christians, fellow people in the church, and uh, people outside the church who are professing believers. Because you just see him talking over and over, calling calling the, the ones he's writing to beloved. He's calling them children. He's calling them brothers. In fact, you can even see that. Verse 13, we'll get there. Do not be surprised, brothers. He's, he's writing to the church. And so here it is, a, a call to love those in the church, a call to love believers, brothers. That's the focus of this. This isn't necessarily loving the world or loving the one outside of Christ. This is talking about loving the one inside of Christ. Let's read. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The core of the passage comes right there in verse 11. Sets up everything. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. It's my first point. We should love. We should love one another. It's right there, the second half, right? We should love one another. Now, of course, this is nothing new to us, right? We've been working through the the, the book of First John. Love's been mentioned many times, right? 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 But surprisingly, that was a that was a, it's a trick. Surprisingly, love's been only mentioned seven times up to this point. Only seven. And there's going to be 37 times it can be mentioned after this point. So chapter 3, verse 11 is pretty close to the middle of the book. The middle of the book is more like yeah, chapter 3, verse 19 or 18 or something like that. But it's, it's, it's pretty close. And it, it says that there's only been seven so far and 37 afterwards. So the emphasis is going to quickly turn to a lot of love <clears throat> emphasis. In fact, it, it occurs seven times even in the passage I just read. Love does. And, and what's also interesting here is that chapter 3, verse 11 is the very first time that John mentions that we should love one another. Love's been mentioned. The love of God's been mentioned three times. The love of the world has been mentioned twice. And the other, t- other time that love is mentioned it's not a command, but an observation. Those who love the brothers, or those who love 
It's just not commanding us to love. Now, certainly we have talked about love enough in recent days that we, we see it there, but right here it comes front and center that we should love one another. So let's think about love. Love is what motivated the, the coming of Christ. Love is what motivated the life of Christ. Love is the end goal and call of us is to love. I mean, the reason why Jesus came to earth was because of love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It was a love motive that God had for lost humanity that brought him here jesus was in the world when he was in the world he he loved his disciples he loved them to the end is what john 13 1 says and you just think about the life of christ you can see how loving he was right you go through first corinthians 13 what what uh phil talked about today right love is patient was jesus patient his disciples How about this? Was Jesus patient with his knucklehead disciples? Yes. Was Jesus kind? Never a more kind man walked the planet. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Did Jesus envy or boast? He he had no envy for the the Pharisees in the high position of, of leadership. In fact, he chose... The low position. Did he boast? No, he didn't boast. He humbled himself even in coming to earth. And then in coming to earth, he was scum of the earth. And willingly took that. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. Jesus was never proud. You could never accuse Jesus of being proud. You can't find a pastor where he's proud. Oh, he speaks high and lofty things. Talking about, I can command, you know, a legion of angels to come and destroy you. And that's pretty high and lofty, but it's not said in an arrogant way. It's said in a very truthful way. Love is not rude. He wasn't rude. Oh, he was angry, righteous anger sometimes, and he cast out everybody from the temple. But he wasn't rude. He was considerate of conversations with people. Not a lot of that times it comes through being patient with people is what he was Uh, continuing love does not insist on its own way now jesus of course insisted on the truth but if there was leeway there it's not like jesus said oh you got to go my way or the highway now he certainly led in ways but but insisting on um uh, insisting on your own way is a matter that i know what is right and it's my way or it's the highway and we got to go this way jesus didn't do that Love is not irritable or resentful. Jesus had many things he could have been irritated about. He had many things he could have been resentful about, but, but none of that. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Of anything that Jesus did, he brought truth to front and center. That's what, what love is. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that is what Jesus did. This is a message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Jesus came because of love. 
Jesus lived love and Jesus calls us to love. Mark chapter 12. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Well, love the Lord your God. There's love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is again love. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these, Jesus says, Mark 12, 31. In other words, there's no greater commandment in all the Bible than what we have right here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, that we should love one another. You say, okay, Steve, what does that mean? Glad you asked, because John gives us a bad example and a good example. Let's look at the bad example first, verses 12 to 15. The bad example of Cain and then some teaching. The good example comes, the example of Jesus, verse 16, and then some teaching. So let's look at the bad example first. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Let's just stop there. I trust you know the story of Cain and Abel. Found in the fourth chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. I could summarize it. I just want to read it for you. Listen to Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of the flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were in the field. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And there's more in that passage then of the repercussions of that. Cain was banished away. But we should not love like Cain loved or actually didn't love his brother. We should not be like Cain. Cain was a child of the devil, as it says. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. He was of the devil, therefore he did what the devil does. And what does the devil do? The devil hates and murders. When talking to the Pharisees, that's exactly what Jesus said. Of them, you are of your father, the devil, John 8, 44, and your will is to do your father's, the devil's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Referring to Cain and Abel probably, but talking about how you need to, you realize you're of the father of the devil, you Pharisees. And they hate and they murder. And as it played out, the Pharisees killed Jesus because they hated him. They wanted to get rid of him. He was a threat. They were envious. They were protecting their own. They wanted their way. All those things of 1 Corinthians 13, of which they were were not. And um, that's clear evidence of Cain that he wasn't walking in love. He needed to not be like Cain. Now, that's pretty extreme, right? So how many of you haven't murdered your brother yet? (laughs) All right, good. Good job. I hope that's every hand. If it's not a hand, we're, we're in trouble here, all right? Um, in fact, 
there are only very few instances in the Bible of a brother killing a brother. Um, Abimelech had 70 brothers. Okay, lots of, lots of wives, not, not one wife. 70 brothers, and he tried to kill all of them. And he got 69 of them, and the youngest one, Jotham, escaped. And, and judges, so when you think judges, you think depravity, you think wickedness, you think that's wicked if you try to kill all 70 brothers and to just miss one. And I don't think Abimelech actually put his hand to it, which makes Cain and Abel so bad is that Cain actually put his hand to it. Abimelech kind of sent his minions out there. Two other brother murders, both have to do with the sons of David. Absalom killed Amnon because he violated his sister. Surely out of rage and anger. Just and Solomon killed Adonijah, who attempted to be king. And that may be even a kingly role of what he, he did there. But that's all. Just these brother murders. It's such a bad sin that few there are that do that. And there's natural affection for, for brothers. Now, it doesn't mean that there are only four children of the devil in the Bible. If you look down to verse 15, it makes it clear. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That goes back to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember he said, you've heard it said. To those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. And Jesus says, but I say to you. Everyone who's angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you're just angry, he says, that is, you're, you're guilty. And it's like you're murdering. And, and Jesus even says this. So if you're, if you're looking to worship and be right with God, so if you're offering your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, then leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and come back and offer your gifts. So, so much Jesus is talking about peace and love and kindness rather than anger and hostility. And, and as John says, right, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. All of a sudden, the bar is raised. If you hate your brother, you are... A murderer. It's not that murder identifies you being a child of the devil. Is it the seed of the murder in your heart is what identifies you as a child of the devil. And that seed is if you hate your brother. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. If you're a murderer, you don't have eternal life. And the whole purpose of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 is so you might know that you have eternal life. And one of the ways you know that you have eternal life is if you look at your life and you say, you know what, the hatred isn't there. I don't have a hatred for my brother. Which can be tested sometimes. Can you talk with your brother? Can you approach your brother? Um, sometimes in church conflict, it's kind of hard. People have hurt you badly. And I've, I've known over the years some people who've had conflict with, and I've, uh, I'm not totally blameless in this in every instance, but I have had several instances where I have reached out in love and grace and totally been shunned. And I think of those people who did that, and I fear for their soul. And sometimes people who are like that aren't attending church anymore. They're off on their own way. 
And there's reason there to be concerned. Because Christian love should be able to overcome that. It's right here that the love there for the church would come in real handy. If you, if you identify someone in the church or in the broader church, you say, oh, uh, a 40-day love challenge would be good. Or maybe in the, the whoop of, uh, the whatever, warp and woof of, of life, maybe a year challenge, right? Once a week, because you don't see those people, but Sunday, you know, it's not like a daily thing where you see a spouse, but once a week, you just kind of, to the, whenever you see that person, you're not saying anything bad. You're not saying bad against them, right? You're showing an act of kindness. You're sending them. You're calling them. That sort of thing would be very helpful in the church. Lest we be like, like Cain, angry with people rather than demonstrating patience and kindness and self-control to those within the body. And really, this is the essence of Christianity, right? To, to love those who hate you in, in many ways. Um, in fact, we ought not to be surprised when others hate us. At least John, John thinks we ought not to be surprised because that's what he says in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. But whoever does not love abides in death. Cain hated Abel. Why? Because Abel's deeds were righteous. You've got to catch that. And we oftentimes can think that if we are righteous and we do the right thing, um, the, the people are going to like us. And, and they are. Even there's a proverb that says, um, when a man is right with God, even his enemies are at peace with him. Right? So, so you're right with God, you're walking in righteousness. There is a sense where enemies are at, at peace with you. But there is also this sense where you walk rightly with God and the world hates it and they will hate you as well. The world hated Cain. Cain. I'm sorry, Cain hated Abel. He hated the fact that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not his. His countenance fell. He got angry. God warned him, and even he went against that warning and took his life and killed his brother. The world hates righteous people. Same true with Jesus. His deeds were righteous, and the religious establishment hated him for it. And they killed him. And, and should we expect anything different? Jesus said, John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. This, that's just the... To follow Jesus means that there will be a hatred from the world. You're called not to love the world, chapter 2, verse 15, and you're called to expect that the world is going to bring its hatred and vitriol upon you. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, right? When you're persecuted for righteousness sake or you're doing the right thing and people hate you for it, don't be surprised. This is, this is how it works. But rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ, that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, what Peter is saying is when insults come, when, when the world hates you for standing for righteousness and, and for Christ, and because of your Christian profession, they hate you for that, you are so blessed because they're identifying Jesus in you and they're hating the Jesus that's in you and identifies that you indeed are, are that side. Because the world hates Christians. And I just say this, there are many people in the professing church who just flat out don't understand this. 
that the world's system is against Christianity. There is a reason why our government is continuing to get increasingly more and more and more difficult towards Christians. Because the world hates Christians. That's how it is. And let's, let's live up to that fact. And so rather than responding in anger to the world, and then we get angry, and then we do something bad, and then the world gets us and persecutes us because we're angry, we're, we're sinful. You know, Peter says this, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or a meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. In other words, right? there's, there's suffering, there's persecution, there's difficulty that comes on because of a righteous stance you make. Maybe your boss wants you to do something, you make your righteous stand. Maybe you're doing something that in your neighborhood and, and it's coming against you because they don't, they don't like it. Well, just continue to walk humbly. But there are many times the religious right fume and get angry at the liberal left. Instead, there ought to be a pervasive attitude of love and grace and kindness like Jesus. Jesus hit the establishment. When things were going contra God. He, he addressed the establishment in a, in a right way. Peter says no. Peter says respond the way that Jesus did. Oh, he had some anger for the Pharisees for sure. But was always controlled, always in love. If you suffer for the name of Christ, glorify God and you will be blessed. You know in Australia, there's a phenomenon called the, the tall poppy syndrome. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this. How many of you heard of tall poppy syndrome? Nobody? Anybody? Good, you learned something new today. The tall poppy syndrome is basically is when, when people are successful and, and move up and, and are, are, are prospering and are doing well, the Aussies like to cut them down. It's like the guy that goes through the poppy field and all the flowers that are tall, he just, he just snips off and, and cuts them down. Because there's something innate in the, in the culture that criticizes talents and achievements because they're, they're going too high and too far. Right? When someone rises above the culture, there's something that says it's a bad thing. You've got to bring them down. You've got to have everybody be alike. And we know this in our culture as well, right? The, the teacher's pet, the, the one who just does everything the teacher says, the one who works hard, the one who studies hard and gets the good grade. The, the teacher is, is amicable towards that, that child and becomes the teacher's pet. And how do people respond to the teacher's pet? They hate it. Because in many ways, the teacher's pet is exposing their laziness, exposing the fact that they're not working hard, they're not studying hard. Or maybe you get that in a work environment when, you know, just the, the attitude at work is just, well, we got to put in our hours. And, and there are some workplaces where um, you, you put in your hours and you get paid. And the slower you do your work, the better because you don't have to work so hard. And so everyone comes in. So someone comes in and starts working really hard. I've heard this happening. And someone comes in, starts working really hard. The others, oh, I got to bring them down. And you bring them down. This whole, right, the tall poppy syndrome brings them down. And so likewise, there is the tall poppy syndrome when it comes to righteousness. You walk righteously and people won't like that because your righteousness exposes them and your love exposes them. Brings them to a different standard that they often don't like. It's why the world hates Christians, because we raise a standard through love and righteous living, and the, the world attacks us. And don't be surprised when that happens. That's how God has made the universe. All right, there's the bad example. Let's go to the good example. 
16 through 18. We are the good example. And of course, the good example is the Lord Jesus Christ. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What a great word for the Christmas season, is it not? Christ Jesus coming, laying down his life for us. In fact, over this Christmas season, we're just going to stay right here in 1 John because there are some verses here in 1 John that speak of the incarnation. Uh, look, chapter, two, verse, chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that confesses the incarnation is from God. Or chapter 4, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. There was Jesus in, in Trinitarian bliss, and God sent Him to earth. Chapter two, verse 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testified the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these verses. Let these stir our thoughts of Christmas and the Incarnation. And right here, we see Christmas. By this we know love. That He came, if you will. He came, He laid down His life for us. The laying down of His life. That is description of the cross. Jesus coming and willingly taking His place upon the cross. In John 10, Jesus spoke about His death in this way. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, and just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I sacrifice for the sheep. And it's clear, a couple of verses later in John ten eighteen, he's talking about his death, his resurrection. No one takes it from me. It wasn't some plan gone astray. He says, no, I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Here's Jesus laying down His life for the sheep. Laying down His life for the brethren. Laying down His life for us. In other words, Jesus giving His life in the place for our life. Laying it down. And that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus came. He came to die. So as to bring us to God. He was our substitute He died the death we should have died. The wages of our sin is death. And Jesus died that death that we might live. He became sin, as we sang, right? Who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. It's the gospel. It's what he's talking about here. Laying down his life for us. He took the bullet for us, if you will. March 30th, 1981. Ronald Reagan speaking engagement in the Washington Hilton. Hotel in Washington, D.C. And unknown to him and unknown to the Secret Service, John Hinckley Jr. was in the crowd outside. Secret Service didn't, didn't search the people outside. They said a colossal mistake, they said. And he was within 15 feet of Ronald Reagan and in his, in his coat or his pocket or whatever, a Romar G14 22 caliber revolver. Ronald Reagan exited the hotel on his way to the bulletproof limousine. He passed right by Hinckley. He said this was his best chance who opened fire. In 1.7 seconds, six bullets went forth. First bullet hit James Brady in the head. Disabled him for life. You know, you know the story. The second bullet 
hit police officer Thomas Delahanty in the back of the neck as he turned to protect Reagan. Didn't kill him. The third bullet overshot, hit a window across the street. The fourth bullet hit Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy in the abdomen as he spread his body over Ronald Reagan to protect him from the fire. Fifth bullet hit off the window of the limousine, ricocheted off. Sixth bullet hit the limousine, hit President Reagan under the left arm, right into just short an inch from his heart. Amazingly, none of those people died. James Brady was disabled the rest of his life. But Timothy McCarthy took a bullet for the president. He received a NCAA award of valor, recognizing his bravery, throwing himself between the, the gunman and the president. I'll take my life rather than yours, Mr. President. That's what they're all trained to do, and yet few really have the opportunity to put it to practice. And he, in a moment's notice, was ready and willing and actually did put himself in harm's way. Now, in many ways, that is what Jesus did for us as he laid down his life for us. God's wrath for our sin was heading towards us. A big tsunami coming forth that we're going to take the wrath of what our sins deserve, heading straight for us. But Jesus laid down his life for us. He covered us so that the wrath of God might hit him and might miss us. It killed him, actually, on the cross. But we survive. And that's the gospel. That's what we need to believe. That's what you all need to believe. Trust in Christ. Trust that he is the one who laid down his life for you. Trust the fact that he took punishment that you deserved and and this gospel has implication for us verse 16 by this we know love that he laid down his life for us you want to say okay what does it mean to love it means to lay down your life for someone and you should rethink about that reflect upon the cross and you'll learn love from the cross dying for someone now, dying for someone with intent okay now Jesus definitely was an example here. In fact, it says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He is our example, but he's not our example that says, oh, Jesus died for us. It's not that we should go and go to a bridge and say, look, I'll let me show you how much I love you and jump off and kill yourself. I'm laying down my life for you. That's not, that's not it. That's what some people say, though, Jesus did. He just died as, a, as an example, like a model of what we should do for other people. We shouldn't jump off bridges and die for other people. We should throw ourselves in harm's way and die for people. That's what we should do. Husbands, you should protect your wives at all costs. Right? And, and it goes, goes to the brother. We ought to step in the way and take the bullet for someone else. But that is an implication for us. As he demonstrated his love, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And that is love. John fifteen thirteen. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Someone would would put their life on the line for friends. The greater love doesn't exist more than that. To give your life. And Jesus explained it in a similar way. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The same way that I've loved you, I want you to love other people. That's what John says. By this we know love, he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And there is the example of Jesus the simple question to you is this. Are you laying down your life for the brothers? 
This is the love test. And this is, this is kind of right, right where it goes, right where it comes. And maybe there's been some conviction in your own life about hatred that's dealing with that. But maybe there's another conviction about loving. Are you laying down your life for others? If, if you're not, if you're just living your own life for yourself, not giving for other people, you fail the love test. The, the love test is intrinsically other-centered and community-centered. And the love test says that you are looking out for the interests of others rather than looking out for your own interest. Verse 17 gives us an insight of what this looks like. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes heart against him, and presumably doesn't act or look to take care of that or help that, says, how does God's love abide in him? It's like, the answer to that is, I don't know, can't doesn't work or you might say it like this if anyone has the world's good sees his brother in need but closes heart against him doesn't act god's love does not abide in that person and they fail the love test in other words in this example love is displayed through giving giving where it lacks your brother's in need you've got the goods they got the need if you keep your goods and they remain in their need it's like Where's God's love in you? If your brother or sister lacks clothes and you have clothes, you don't give them the clothes, where's God's love? Your brother or sister lacks food, you got the food. If you don't help that, what good is it? In fact, that's what James says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? And I just say this, it's no good, you fail the test. In fact, that's why John continues in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now the the emphasis here is that I don't think it's wrong to, to love in word. Okay, there's many ways which you can love people in word by by saying affirming things, by by saying I love you, right? By by just expressing affection by the way you love. There certainly is not anything wrong with that, but he's saying let's just let's not love only with our words, but let's do it with our actions in deed and in truth, what we do, and thoroughly according to the the truth of God. So really the. The emphasis here is on giving. And so are, are you giving? Are you giving? You know, over the years at Rock Valley Bible Church, my heart has always been that you give. And I believe you're giving people, the church will certainly have enough. But are you giving even one-to-one? Not to say, oh yeah, I give money to the church. But are you even finding need and giving need to people? Do you help? Are you have eyes open like that? Can you think of things that you've, you've given? Now, that, that's not like um, my old Aunt Alvern. My Aunt Alvern, who's passed away, whatever, five, ten years ago, I can't remember. She would see a need, she'd go to the store, she'd buy clothes and, and give them, and then give the, the receipt to parents to expect a payback. You know, that's just kind of expecting this. <laughs> that's Aunt Alvern, all right? She just sees this and kind of meets it, but yeah, it's kind of, but seeing a need and meeting it physically somehow now one of the problems is that we are so abundant I mean, which of us lack clothes which of us lack food none of us but there might be some other things that are lacked that maybe would be helped by just giving 
Uh, Bob Clinton recently emailed out his, his update this past week sometime, maybe Wednesday, talking about the work in India and Nepal he's doing. And I know some of, many of you get that. If you're supporting children over there, you, you see that. And uh, one of the things that he's looking to do is push now is to um, purchase a, uh, a, a land for the, the Boda Children's Home. These are kids who've come over from uh, was Burma. I think it's where they're from. From the Himalayas, like up in, not not Burma. What am I thinking about? I'm thinking about uh, Tibet. They're coming. They're Tibetan kids, and they're they're coming in, and uh, they're in a rented place. They've been in several different places, looking for a land, looking for a place to to settle, and and uh, so this is in Kathmandu, some place they have. They're staying right now, right across from a uh, Buddhist monastery. You can see the flags, kind of right right where you are. They're a light in a dark place, to be sure. Looking for this place to house children, and I think right now they have maybe about 25. That's all they have capacity. I think probably that would get bigger if they get this parcel of land. But I was very much encouraged by by one of their co-workers there, Prakash, who uh, is directing the senior project ministry down in uh, Chitwan area. He has a heart for these kids. I sent out email in the Weekly Word recently about him just washing that old man. Remember that picture? indelible like just him caring just like like jesus did and bob clinton shared how when when he got to see the property he says i will give a month's salary to this i don't know what precaution salary is okay but his salary in a month that's like a twelfth of his income and many of you children could give that from your bank account from your from your piggy bank probably could give that he doesn't have much but what he has he's given he's laying down his life for those children there as i mix with people in, in india and, and lord willing hopefully i'm hoping to go and may again hopefully avon will come along uh, with us to train some pastors over there to encourage the the work i'm always struck they don't they don't say this but i i do think they have questions in their mind is it we have so much are we giving appropriately can you see the need and close your heart how does god's love abide you now you need to be wise about how you give because you don't want to create a dependency okay there are ways to give to create dependency and then it just downward spirals but there are ways you can give that can be really blessing particularly i think to children who are just because of no fault of their own or just just in the world like where they are and you can give, and, and the heart here is to not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth, and whether that's giving or whether that's acting or whether that's helping, whether that's giving a ride or giving a help or giving a tool or giving, I don't, wherever you see a need, I just say give, and may we be people who are just giving and external so that we see the love test being passed. And, and that's what the early church did, Acts chapter 2, verse 45 says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in the homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts as they just gave as people had need. Now, you know, again, you've got to give wisely. If people, don't, if people don't work, they shouldn't eat. Hey, don't, don't give people so they can just sit there, right? But if they're working and they're trying and they're knocking and they lack, give, help. Enable, empower. That's why the farms ministry is so good. It's enabling, empowering, Gary. I love that ministry. Just enabling, empowering people who lack the resources, but they get some resources and they can do something with it. 
This is the early church. When there were needy people, they helped them. The, the testimony was, Acts 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid the apostles' feet, distributed to as many as had need. Just, just a giving environment, to be sure. Now I'll just say this, verses 17 and 18, John leaves little fudge room. Family has the world's goods, beholds the brother in need, yet glows his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let's not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And your heart may be challenged. If you remember the story of the, the Good Samaritan, Jesus challenged the guy and says, Oh, who's my neighbor? Like trying to feel snug in who his neighbor was. And Jesus told the story about the man who was beaten and, and these righteous people passed by, but the Samaritan went and he helped this person. He says that person proved to be a neighbor. And I think one of the things that, that come from that story is a conviction like, oh, there are lots of people I could help, but I don't. And perhaps that's your feeling this morning, and I do believe that's why he comes real quickly. We're just going to look at 19 and 20. At having a heart that condemns. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him, right? That we, we should know that when, when we're giving, we're, we're of the truth, we have eternal life because we're, we're sharing, we're loving in genuine ways. And then he speaks the most difficult verse in all of First John to translate, by the way, in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. I, I think this is coming as a, as a commendation, as a help is that when there is condemnation in your own heart, to say, I'm not loving like I ought, I'm not giving like I ought, I, I have hatred in my heart, whatever, that God knows and God can help. And, and you, you can either look at that and just feel condemned and, and washed up, or you can look and just say, listen, when, when my heart's condemning me, I know that God is, is greater than my heart. He knows everything. He knows all the circumstances behind the situations I'm in, the What's happening, he knows my heart, and I just need to, need to trust him. So if that's your heart this morning, I just encourage you to trust in, trust in God, trust in his, his comforting place, because he knows, he knows it all. And next week, we'll pick it up in 21 and talk about prayer. But let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to genuinely pass the love test. Father, we might be people who are, are not feeling condemned. God, oh, certainly there is sin, and oh, certainly there are people we've passed and needs that we have failed to act upon in timidity and uncertainty. Father, I, I pray you would help us. God, I, I do believe better to overhelp than underhelp. And so God, help us to be to be those who act rightly. Give us the wisdom, O God, in all these things. Help us, O God, when our heart condemns us. God, I thank you that you know all things and that from you it's a black and white issue, whether we're a child of God or a child of the devil. Help us to know and discern those things. And I would pray, God, for all of us here that we'd be confident that we have eternal life because we know the side of the righteous test we land and the love test we land. And for those who are who are convicted of sin, I, I, I pray, God, you'd stir in their hearts, they'd repent, and they'd see there's a, a greater need. God, to look beyond themselves, to stop having a pity party, to stop pursuing their own selfish desires, but, but give, to give away. 
Help us all, O oh God, to be a, a loving church, a giving church, an encouraging church in all ways. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.